This podcast is sponsored by BioFire. High acuity patients require time-sensitive specialized care. As a critical care physician, you need rapid, reliable test results to make informed intervention decisions. The BioFire film array system utilizes a syndromic approach, simultaneously testing for different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms to deliver actionable results in about an hour. BioFire helps you quickly identify specific infectious agents, allowing you to begin targeted treatment sooner. Learn more about solutions from the leader in syndromic testing at BioFireDX.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. COVID-19 has many novel features that have forced the medical community to rapidly learn from each other. COVID-19-associated coagulopathy has been one of the challenges and has created new and interesting ways of us thinking about our care delivery. Today, I'll be speaking with Jared H. Levy, MD, FAHA, FCCM, on the article Coagulopathy in COVID-19, published in Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Levy is Professor of Anesthesiology, Critical Care Professor of Surgery and Cardiothoracic, and the Co-Director of the Cardiothoracic ICU at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Levy. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? Um, I am on steering committees, data safety monitoring committees for instrumentation labs, for Griffolds, for um, Janssen, and also for Octopharma and Merck. Thank you. Um, the clinical experience with COVID-19 really uh, started in Wuhan, as we all know. You, and it set the stage for what we know about COVID-19 now. As it relates to coagulopathy, what did we learn from the experience there and how did it set the stage for us as the disease spread into Europe and the United States? Well, I, I think I better, as, as a non-ID person, but more of a coagocentric person, I really wanna focus on the coagocentric issues. But what's interesting, I think, is that um, the hypercoagulability was a phenomenon that I think was one of the most sort of surprising perspectives. Uh, and I think also, you know, the concept is that whether we are really good at venous thromboembolic prophylaxis in critically ill patients is an, is an ongoing issue, even pre, pre-COVID era. So I think part of the original, some of the original problems they saw was related to probably inconsistent venous thromboembolic prophylaxis therapy and recognizing the early hypercoagulability, which actually is not such a new phenomenon. It's just we see so much of it in the COVID-19 and the incredible onslaught that occurred created, I think, a new paradigm for them to, to deal with. Your group uh, also published in June of 2020 an article in Critical Care on the unique features of COVID-19 coagulopathy. And, and one of the really nice features of that article is, is sort of a summary of how uh, COVID-19 coagulopathy compares to some of the other coagulopathies that intensivists are more familiar, more familiar with going into this pandemic, including DIC and microthrombotic uh, microangiopathy. I was wondering if you might spend just a few minutes sort of comparing and contrasting some of these coagulopathies and, and how the similarities we see, but also the differences. Uh, I think that's really a great question and uh, an important question as well. You know, this this coagulopathy we see is really a consistent with all infectious coagulopathies that have kind of been around for a long time. 
Um, and the actually thrombotic microangiopathies that occur in a whole different critically ill patient uh, scenarios is, is not new, but I think just the degree and the number of patients that we've seen really is um, that hypercoagulable thrombotic issue is I think something that was a bit of a new phenomenon for a lot of clinicians to understand. You know, if you look at actually DIC in an infectious process, sepsis traditionally, and, and my group, uh, Toshiaki Iba is currently the head of the DIC committee for the ISTH. I'm actually the chair of the perioperative critical care committee for the International Society of Thrombocytostasis. Marcel Levy is one of the world experts in DIC coagulopathy, and he's one of the gurus now in, uh, in London. Um, and and uh, Jaco Theko has also been very much involved in, in DIC. You know, we've been working together to understand uh, acute septic DIC for a long, long time. What's interesting is the problem is that there are different phenotypic expressions of DIC. Um, the hemorrhagic phenomenon is part of that and maybe is also traumatic coagulopathy, although we have through years been pulling traumatic coagulopathy out of the DIC concept. But the reality is that there's also a hypercoagulable form of, of DIC. And remember the flesh-eating bacteria, the clostridia, and some of the other issues that occurred, there are a certain hypercoagulable scenarios that occur. For instance, in profound DIC, um, when you have uh, peripheral, symmetrical peripheral gangrene or uh, acrocyanosis, two major things cause that, and one is which DIC, as well as certainly shock liver. So there's a hypercoagulability there. Um, and in all of the infectious processes that occur, there's variable response. But the unique aspect, I think, is in acute infection with endotoxin, exotoxin, fungi, zymosin, you get acute vascular endothelial injury, but there's the potential, one, for recovery. Two, we have drugs that we can acutely treat the infection, and despite the original endothelial injury, um, if we can support patients through that, usually the antibiotics and other drugs kick in in a couple hours. We're off of vasopressors or decreased it, depending upon the element of organ injury. The problem with COVID-19 is with the acute infection, we don't treat it. And furthermore, the site of entry is an endothelial mechanism where you get that acute endotheliopathy, endotheliolitis, and you get apoptosis and cell death. So it's a complex progression with certain similarities, again, of that thrombotic microangiopathy, but with certain differences as well. So for somebody who's been studying this for a long time, like uh, our group and myself, it's, it's fascinating because, again, the difference is we don't treat it. Even the question is with remdesivir, are we able, is it, it's not the immediate kill. We see when the patient comes in septic shock and we start them on vancomycin, zosin, and maybe an antifungal. So uh, but again, it's in that spectrum, in my view, of the thrombotic microangiopathies that can occur. That's interesting. You know, I think that what we've also seen, um, this was um, um, perhaps new to me, but may not, is not likely not new historically, is, is on autopsy resorts, the degree of um, microemboli that we see in the lungs uh, and the, the impact that that has uh, on the patient. Um, what's, what is your experience in, in that area, and, and how does this relate to other things that you've seen in your career? So 
what's interesting is the ARDS world, you know, they, the, the postmortems have shown that microangiopathic thrombotic phenomenon. It's not embolic, most likely. It's probably a local phenomenon. As I mentioned, you get endothelial injury, endothelial um, cell death, apoptosis, and the endo basically you've lost all any kind of uh, perspective of endothelial function, anticoagulant, and it's obviously with the hypercoagulability that occurs, you get local thrombotic uh, effect. So that microthrombotic, but you also get the macrothrombosis, which may be in situ in bigger vessels and or potentially even for embolic phenomenon from the periphery and elsewhere. What's really interesting is that um, I was an ICU fellow at Mass General many years ago, and my mentor, Warren Zapal, who's also the, the guy who developed the nitric oxide and the use patent, he has a paper in, in the American Journal of Pathology in one of the pathology journals in 1984, and 20 plus patients who actually died of ARDS, infectious causes primarily. And when you look at the postmortem, it was that exact same microthrombotic uh, vascular uh, issues that we see currently. That not only creates a hypoxemia, and BQ imbalance, but also probably hypercarbia and all the other different problems that we see in acute lung injuries. So I think it's just the incredible number of patients that we all as clinicians are seeing. Um, this is sort of a rediscovery of an old phenomenon, but certainly uh, an ongoing problem. Uh, and again, uh, a local effect, vascular injury, cell death, and, and obviously microthrombosis. And, and that's again, part of the um, thrombotic microangiopathy syndromes. And the other thing that's been unique for many of us in this disease has been the high inflammatory levels that we see, particularly of IL-6 and IL-3. And I just wonder, you, you all mentioned in your article, the relationship between this inflammation and the laboratory values that we're drawing for coagulopathy as well. And, and what's the interplay there and how do we interpret those sort of linked results? Well, you know, as part of any infectious process, there's phenomenal cytokine activation that occurs as part of the orchestration and trying to create sort of acute inflammatory injury. What's interesting is in immediate hypersensitivity has been a, a separate area of my interest for years, the acute inflammatory process um, that occurs as part of you know, a foreign organism in order to try to obviously immobilize it, kill it, um, localize it. And I mean, I think the hyperfibrinogenemia you see is part of an infectious process to try to localize that infectious process wherever the site of entry and you know, to prevent further spread. The cytokine story is part of this over-exuberant inflammatory response that actually starts to influence host injury. And in any acute inflammatory process, whether it's anaphylaxis, whether it's uh, other hyper-inflammatory response syndrome, whether it's SIRS or whatever, you get this systemic activation, which is the body sort of priming everything from increasing adhesion molecules, increasing receptors, um, on inflammatory cells to, so that everything sort of gets sticky uh, in order to try to, again, you know, fight the in invading organism. But again, part of the problem is that you also end up um, creating injury to the host. And so much of the variability of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome that we see from all the different cytokines is, I think, just a manifestation of, of the body's hyped inflammatory response. And as I mentioned earlier, remember 
uh, how long the infection rages without appropriate therapy. Remdesivir was not originally developed for the SARS-CoV virus, frankly. Hmm. So the reality is that uh, the COVID-2 virus, the COVID-19 virus. So, you know, the, the problem is we have this ongoing infectious process that's amp ramping up all the inflammatory scenarios. And what's critical in inflammatory response is all the amplification that occurs. So um, it's, it's kind of, a, again, a fascinating acute inflammatory response that's taking out the host now with, with injury. Does that answer your question? That, yeah, that was perfect. I mean, I think it's a, a complicated thing. And remember, in sepsis, SIRS, you know, nobody's interested in SIRS anymore, but that systemic inflammatory response syndrome that's part of sepsis has been with us and, you know, is intermittently over many years been of interest to clinicians. It, all good points. I think so far, you know, one of the things that I've heard from you and from many others is, is that uh, one of the, the challenges with COVID-19 is, is uh, we're back to having an infection that for which we have no treatment. So now we're seeing the inflammatory process in its, you know, novel form without all the interventions that we do. Absolutely. And the affinity for the vascular endothelium with a variable infinity um, is really interesting. Uh, and, and I mean, and I think like every biological inflammatory response, there's different manifestations. And if I can spin out acute inflammatory response, you have an IgE antibody to some, some, some antigen. And you rechallenge, I rechallenge you uh, or any individual with this. Some people develop, for instance, a local urticaria. Some people develop angioedema in their mucosal surfaces. Some people develop shock. Some people develop bronchospasm and some people develop it all. So the actual phenotypic expression of acute inflammation varies so much from individuals due to a whole series of different, you know, who knows exactly why and how much inflammation occurs. You know, if you think about it, who are the people who are at greatest risk for, you know, morbidity, mortality? It's the people, the hypertensives, the obese patients, the diabetics, those who have already pre-existing vascular endothelial dysfunction, where they're already at borderline function, and now you totally wipe out what normal leftover endothelial function they have, and guess what? I mean, that's really problematic. And they also have microcirculatory abnormalities. So, I mean, it, it, to me, it's all kind of consistent with what we know about the acute infectious process. That's, that's really interesting. I, I wanted to get to one of the other points that you all make in your article, which uh, was um, uh, great to see written out. But I, when, as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 sort of spread, I think we had lots of suggestions from lots of societies on how we were gonna manage uh, this coagulopathy that we were really just understanding. And I think some places, uh, some institutions went to sort of uh, full anticoagulation. In other words, you know, intermediate uh, anticoagulation, sort of a, a higher dose prophylactic, and then and then just standard prophylactic anticoagulation. You also mentioned at the beginning, you know, that our affinity for really being able to do prophylactic anticoagulation in the ICU, uh, while we think we're really good at it, is probably more variable than we would all like to admit. What are your thoughts now as we've learned more about this or relearned more about this, about what we should be doing for our patients um, based on the, the coagulopathies we're seeing? You know, that's a great question. And that's a question that's being further examined. Um, with many of the gurus of the ISTH, we actually have a recent, we have a, a recent recommendation sort of evaluation of, of 
understanding uh, the role of VTE prophylaxis or management or variability of anticoagulation in this syndrome. Um, I think the problem is that, uh, well, the, the answer will be with the randomized studies that, that are continuing to evolve. So to answer your question, I, I wish I knew the exact answer, but first let me start with the Wuhan experience that you originally discussed. I think early on, because of the lack of the recognition of the hypercoagulability, patients weren't routinely prophylaxed, uh, even simple VTE prophylaxis. And one of the interesting things in the multitude of Chinese data, there was one study where they actually, as they increased anticoagulation, there seemed to be improvement you know, in, in adverse events and, and, and morbidity and survival. Interestingly, um, I think the problem is the variability of VTE prophylaxis. For instance, you know, fixed dose 40 milligrams of uh, low molecular weight heparin of anoxaparin versus um, adjusting it to body weight um, versus a full dose of, you know, full, full systemic dosing, you know, with twice a day. Uh, the problem with all anticoagulation strategies for whatever disease process is you get bleeding. And once you get bleeding, that is independently associated with adverse events. Um, I, I, I don't, I think we're still kind of figuring out what the best strategy is. You know, a lot of the current data is retrospective analyses. And from that, you know, we, I mean, we've moved backwards with, with the preprint servers and all the information that's out there, sorting it through is still um, something that I think we need to figure out. But, you know, with, with what the NHLBI and everyone uh, is trying to do with is randomized studies. And I think that'll definitely answer the question. What's interesting is that there have been lots of recommendations and guidance documents that are out there. Uh, people have gone to low molecular weight heparin primarily because it's easier, it's, you know, you don't have to monitor it. But if you have renal failure, low molecular weight heparin has a super long half-life and bleeding is not an inconsequential issue. So the anticoagulation story is interesting. Um, you know, in, in several other uh, reports that we actually published and, and one of the reports uh, earlier or similar article I published with Gene Connors out of uh, Harvard, who is uh, actively involved in many anticoagulation procedures. And she's actually one of the lead investigators in one of the NHLBI studies. The recommendations is, you know, it's based on uh, standard prophylaxis, unless you're in the ICU or perhaps your D-dimers are, you know, there, there's different guidelines five times the upper limits normal, three times, six times the upper limits of normal with hyperfibrinogenemia. I think if you're hyperfibrinogenemic, and remember a normal fibrinogen is 200 to 400 milligrams per deciliter, two to four grams per liter, patients go up to six, seven, 800 you know, milligrams per deciliter, six to eight grams per liter with high D dimers. Those are the people that alone, I think, suggest we should think about higher dose or, or you know, standard full dose anticoagulation. But I think a lot of the, the true data will, will come with the randomized studies. And that's part of, I think, the NHLBI plan and studies that are uh, currently planned. You've uh, had a number of years of experience in this area and, and have been looking at the data related to COVID-19, obviously, very carefully. What, are you, what do you think the questions we should be asking ourselves now as a, a scientific community uh, to move forward and understanding 
these uh, coagulopathies that are, are related to infection? So there's a very in, there's a, there's a group in Strasbourg, um, Julie Helms um, and uh, and her colleagues who published several VTE and, and PE studies. They have a study, uh, a, a paper that goes back about now three or four years. Uh, I think it's in intensive care medicine, which is one of my favorite papers that shows the um, what what they call immunothrombosis. I actually prefer the, the term thromboinflammation, but it's it's all similar of acute infections with the initial hypercoagulability as a, as by increased fibrinogen, as I mentioned. And I think the D-dimer is just the fact that you've now laid down lots of fibrinogen in local areas and it's trying to be lysed. So the high D-dimers and hyperfibrinogenemia um, alone is, is, I think, an important consideration for adjusting anticoagulation. But this is a phenomenon that occurs in, in almost all infectious patients. My favorite story, if I can do a clinical scenario, I came into the ICU one day and, and a patient with a transplant, obviously immunosuppressed, rule out COVID. Patient had a fibrinogen level of 800 milligrams per deciliter. D-dimers were like uh, 12 to 15 upper limits of normal. They were about, um, uh, I don't know, 5,500 nanograms per mil. And, and he had ground glass appearance on his x-ray and it was uh, mycoplasma. So, uh, you know, it's this is the acute infectious process, but it's a characteristic finding that I, I've been interested also not only in procoagulant, but in bleeding and actually have written a lot about fibrinogen, fibrinogen measurement, repletion. So um, I think P clinicians are now measuring fibrinogen. And one of the things is in, if you do DIC scoring, D-dimer is important. And I've been measuring you know, DIC screens in critically ill patients with infection for many years. You know, you, you get the working knowledge of what these biomarkers mean and how we can potentially use them clinically. Uh, the scoring systems are kind of screwy. And, and you know, it's, what's interesting is when you read all the plethora of literature about COVID coagulopathy and, you know, a significant number developed DIC, you know, if you and I sit in the ICU long enough and we survive the initial insult from COVID, the secondary, uh, you know, hospital-acquired pneumonia, secondary infections are very common, and 50% develop that. So when they start developing florid DIC with a consumptive state, they probably have a secondary infection. Um, and, and so in all of the retrospective reporting, the timestamp to me is critical to understand when they were admitted, when they were diagnosed, when they have what coagulation parameters um, because it's a, a flux and a change that occurs. So sorry if I've deviated from your original question, but it's just absolutely interesting. Can I say something about DIC? Would that be okay? I would love it. That would be great. Thank you. So, you know, people keep saying this is not DIC. Well, one of the gurus who's written a lot about DIC from the ISTH, a, a guy out of Japan named um, Gando, Dr. Gando, um, he has qualified DIC from the hemorrhagic form to the hypercoagulable form. And what and how it occurs is variable. Most, even hematologists don't use, don't use DIC scoring. But in the standard ISTH criteria, there are four parameters, fibrinogen, D-dimers, prothrombin time, and platelet count. 
The Japanese score called the Japanese Acute Care Medicine or JAM criteria doesn't use fibrinogen. And I prefer that scoring. They also will use a SOFA score as part of their um, scoring system, which I think is really particularly interesting because we are dealing with acute infection. And the thing about fibrinogen is that, uh, you know, in, in some patients and pregnant women, it goes high. Fibrinogen to me is not is, is quite variable. But if you come in the ICU or come in the hospital and your INR prothrombin time is sky high and your platelet count is extremely low, those are the two big parameters in the DIC measurement. And, and you know, everybody can get those sort of simple parameters. Fibrinogen can be variable. So there are a lot of permutations that exist, but it's an interesting phenomenon. There is hypercoagulable DIC that occurs and the DIC that's reported in COVID-19, you have to be careful as you read because this is a secondary infection, but certainly hypercoagulability can occur in DIC. It's just more of a kind of a mixed picture in most patients. I think one of the things that you've highlighted for all of us is, and has been repeated in other uh, discussions around COVID-19 is, is that the challenge with uh, um, learning from retrospective studies is that it's not just the data that they're producing, but when was that delayed data collected within the time course of the disease? Uh, because the, the disease, you know, if it's collected early versus late, uh, may reflect a very different process. And so we have to sort, we have to parse through that data very carefully as we're reading those studies and trying to understand the implications of what they found. Yeah, thank you for saying that, because that's really critical, the timestamp. You know, the anarchy, the anticoagulation story is interesting. There's, there's a couple of studies now, one in blood and a few others from these large, from New York and other databases um, that actually talk about pre-existing uh, anticoagulation and is, is that, you know, is that improve outcomes in, in COVID-19? Well, the reality is probably not because you're probably sicker if you have atrial fib or some other disease and you're on an anticoagulant. Um, I mean, to me, that's all a bit confusing. But the reality is that Therapy in any of these complex infectious states is really multimodal. You've got to one, treat the underlying infection, which is a big problem with COVID-19. Two, think about anticoagulation. And three, um, what's, you know, now everybody's playing with all these different playing, is, is evaluating all the different anti-inflammatory anti strategies. The problem with inflammation is that there's so much humoral cellular amplification, shut off one limb, everything else kicks in as well. So um, these single strategies, whether they'll be effective or not, I don't know. Part of it is what's really important is your host immune system. Um, I was an ICU fellow many years ago with, with Richard Hotchkiss, who's at WashU. Richard is a real sepsis guru. Um, and he actually was the first to show lymphocyte apoptosis and sepsis, uh, that, you know, all the immunodysregulatory issues that occur. He subsequently was a big advocate trying to look at the PD-1, PD-1L ligand inhibitors to try to amplify immune responsiveness uh, in a kind of after acute therapy, because people who have acute infectious process often have immunodysregulation that occurs for a long time. He currently is, uh, I think, running, helping to run an IL-7 study to amplify host immunity to try to help um, improve outcomes. So there's a lot of interesting therapeutic maneuvers that are being studied. Um, 
I think if there's any one technique beyond anticoagulation and the importance of that, um, and is and not having the ideal, you know, acute kill for COVID-19 is the is hosting the immune response. And the other question is once the vaccine ever becomes standard, you know, how long will immunity occur? One other interesting spin that following all these therapeutic maneuvers is the interest in the convalescent plasma. Um, some of the trauma guys, actually the term endotheliopathy, I think was first um, developed at first sort of initiated by the trauma physician who said plasma is important when you resuscitate patients uh, because it helps modulate the endotheliopathy. And plasma, there's, you know, C1 esterase inhibitor, antithrombin, alpha-2 antiplasmin. There's all sorts of antithrombin. There's all sorts of very interesting antibodies. So one of the interesting theories that has come up is, you know, is convalescent plasma doing anything more than plasma alone? And actually there are people you know, that some of the trauma team is looking at actually potentially for plasma. So there's all these interesting therapies that are being investigated. The bottom line is that three major critical therapies need to be considered, as I mentioned. And just again, anti-infectious, anticoagulation, and anti-inflammatory. And how to put these together, I think that's what NIH and HLBI is trying to do right now. Yeah, those are all good points. Um, I, I, I'm lo I look forward to seeing how this evolves. Uh, having lived through some of the other um, immune modulators like the activated protein C and others uh, in my short career, um, I you know I, I do. I'm also um, humbled enough to know that I, I worry sometimes about the in of one study that comes out that shows a great effect, and then we we learn more because, as you said, you ramp down one thing, and and the yeah, the rest of the system is kicking in as well, and and trying to um, determine what the best optimal therapy I, I, I feel is something that's going to be something we struggle with for years uh, with this disease. Kyle, can I kind of correct you if you don't mind? APC activated protein C was not an immune modulator. It was an anticoagulant. That's a good point. Yes. Apologies. Yeah, so that's a good point. Actually, yeah. this, is, this has been a focus, antithrombin and, and activated protein C, and, and work that I've done also with Toshiaki Iba, again, an infectious coagulopathy. The problem with these different clinical studies is they treated sepsis. They didn't treat patients with septic coagulopathy. When you do repeated, and, and apologies for going back for, for looking at data, but when you do repeated sub-analyses of the coagulopathic patients, those that clearly probably had a lot of endothelial dysfunction who got either antithrombin, who either got APC, there's improved survival. And some of it actually had statistical significance, including um, some of the, the Scarlet study and some other studies. APC has been a more complex molecule, in my opinion. But and let me, I, I said APC, but I meant really the two things that really are, are being used in Japan are recombinant thrombomodulin and antithrombin. Mm -hmm. uh, and sepsis, and, and it's pretty much part of the Japanese criteria to give a dose at least acutely. If, and one of the things that Toshiaki Iba, who's the first author on our article actually showed that if you study and administer these drugs to coagulopathic patients, there's much, much better and much Im improved outcomes compared to looking at all of the data. And part of the problem of all these studies is that the coagulopathic patients are not consistently being treated. Those specifically, right. as you point out, with DIC. 
Yeah, that, uh, good points all around. And yeah, thank you for that correction. Uh, and I guess my, my challenge or my, my thought was also that um, we will have a, a, a um, distribution of disease within this population of people who have COVID-19, those with more or less coagulopathy. Uh, and it may take us a while to understand the differences between those two phenotypic presentations um, and how we respond to them. Absolutely. You know, I think that's it. The, the, the serine protease inhibitor like plasma, antithrombin, I think are all part of a multimodal approach. You know, if, um, and, and what to treat, you know, targeting therapy based on the individual phenotypic expression of the patient, I think is important. Um, and many of the, at least the anticoagulation guidance document have really focused on, you know, are you critically ill? Do you have high fibrinogen and high D-dimers? Then, you know, perhaps higher level anticoagulation may be important. But again, we really need more randomized studies to look at that. And in all of these anti-inflammatory pathways, finding the magic arrow is really, has been a real challenge because of, again, all the humoral and cellular amplification that occurs. What's interesting is that the role of complement keeps recycling through the years. Um, I worked with exiluzumab originally when it was pexiluzumab in some cardiac surgical studies because it was thought that there's a major cause of reperfusion injury. Um, it morphed to exiluzumab and then now it's being used in atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome and some other scenarios. It's an interesting phenomenon, but you know, remember the balance of all these inflammatory pathways are activated to immobilize, kill the organism, and whether it's corticosteroids or whatever we use, you know, the, the way we're going to survive this is our inflammatory and immunomodulatory system kicks in and beats the organism. Um, the problem is that by the time it does, you've already got the inflammation. So finding that balance is uh, something that, you know, continues to evolve. The multimodal therapy is critical, and you know I think randomized studies hopefully will answer help help answer that. Dr. Levy, this has all been great. Is there anything that we should have covered that we haven't covered yet? I don't think so. I think just to sort of summarize, the ARDS finding is an old finding, the microvascular thrombotic issue. I think your point on the thrombotic microangiopathies and how these are all part of this, the COVID-19 coagulopathy is really part of that. But the systemic hypercoagulability is also the body's inflammatory response to the in invading organism. I think your questions have been great. And I think um, that we've covered all the important topics. Uh, more to come, lots of other interesting perspectives. And I think hopefully finding the, uh, uh, an antiviral and, and finding the, the correct kind of like mix for, to make that soup, the stew, uh, will hopefully help us figure out the best therapy in the future. But thanks for the opportunity, Kyle, to participate. Very important and, and um, stay safe. Thank you very much and, and same to you. And uh, for the iCritical Care podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield. This podcast is sponsored by BioFire. High acuity patients require time-sensitive specialized care. As a critical care physician, you need rapid, reliable test results to make informed intervention decisions. The BioFire film array system utilizes a syndromic approach, simultaneously testing for different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms to deliver actionable results in about an hour. BioFire helps you quickly identify specific infectious agents,
allowing you to begin targeted treatment sooner. Learn more about solutions from the leader in syndromic testing at BioFireDX.com. Kyle Enfield, M.D. Kyle Enfield, M.D. is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.